You are listening to Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, a seminar given by Changing Lives Ministries. David Pallison is a counselor and faculty member with a Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, as well as the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, a publication of CCEF. Session 8. We're heading down the home stretch here in terms of the segment that I'll be doing with you. Uh, Paul will be coming on and make all this that we've done about our lives start to transfer into the lives of others. Uh, but uh, uh, what I wanted to, what, the way I want us to close here today is to work through together what we've called the second big arrow. What does that good fruit really look like? And I want to I just review just for one minute the, that first big arrow that goes to God because we cannot underestimate, as we said before, the fact that our problem has to do with God, that's the heart problem, that vertical dimension. Therefore, the core solution also has to do with the God of grace, with a person that you transact with. I vividly remember hearing Johnny Erickson Tata speak uh, a couple of years ago. And if those of you who've heard her, she, I mean, she mainly tells her story, but it has many pieces. And this part she told was of a time when she was in such despair that she would have killed herself. But she couldn't kill herself because she was paralyzed. And her heart was as absolutely bleak and hopeless as was possible. And she described how many well-meaning friends came to her. And they, uh, she described how some people tried to give her answers, you know, theological explanations, God's sovereignty, and you know, what his purposes are in suffering, and, and rationale for what was going on. And the answers gave her no comfort. And other people tried to give her principles. You know, here's things you can do. Here's strategies to deal with disability. Here's, here's, here's things you can uh, think about. Here's advice, the how-to, the handles to, to get on the problem. And for some reason, it didn't help her. These were, and they were great answers and great principles. And then other people would throw in a third thing. Uh, she called it programs. You know, get involved with this and get involved with that. And here's, you know, something you ought to be doing. And here's ways to be accountable. And great Great, good stuff. But somehow the answers, the principles, the programs, they just didn't have the horsepower to change her. And she described a very close friend of hers, a female friend, come into her late one night when she's lying there stretched out on this bed, came up next to her and started to sim simply started to sing to her and saying, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. And the way that Johnny put it was so wise. She said, I realized that there was a person, the man of sorrows, who was coming to me. And then in the light of that, the answers, the rationales, the principles, the strategies, the programs, the, you know, get involved with this, all those things start to really flourish. They make sense. All that tangible, do this, think this, it all makes sense in the light. You might say, grafted onto the living root of this person who has chosen to come to us. Here's our final section here. Faith works through love. I'm citing Galatians 5, 6, obviously, the core of, the, of it all. As you act into your world, the heat hasn't gone away, right? And you used to be act, acting with, you know, hostility or anger, temper, you know, temper tantrums and anxiety and your addictions and 
how will you actually be different? It's this second big arrow where we move back into our world in a different way. And I've broken this up into a number of things that I think of as sweet, extremely sweet fruit and often surprising. Often we as Christian people don't think of these things or don't think of all of them and see them for what they are, how important they are and how crucial they are to life and how delicious and delightful they are as to our own lives and to the lives of the people that we live with. Uh, I've broken them into, into uh, three major sections. The first section is that there's something at the very center of the fruit tree that your humanity is redeemed. Redemption doesn't make you a religious freak. It doesn't make you a plaster saint. It doesn't make you some kind of unreal, weird, spiritual puppet being filled with bizarre stuff. Redemption makes you human. It is the redemption of the creation that was fallen. And so you're actually made exactly what a human being is meant to be because you are made like Jesus himself, who is the one human being that fired on all cylinders and reacted, thought, acted, chose, felt, responded to suffering, to human need, to struggles, to temptations. He responded exactly the way a human being responds. And he was never weird, right? He's never bug-eyed like some of the Jesus films and that sort of thing. He's a person. And so are we. And I've put three uh, crucial fruits um, that I think often surprise us. For example, this first one. It is a sweet fruit on the tree of wisdom that you gain a framework for self-knowledge, that you learn to be able to see yourself and see your life and see what is around you the way God sees it more and more. That has really been the goal of our entire time together. That's the goal of these three trees in the desert roadmap that we've been working with. It's that we might have a way to slow the VCR down, to put a pause button on it, frame-by-frame advance, let me tear it apart. What's happening to me, right? How am I reacting? Is Is that wise or foolish? Where's it coming from? It's coming out of faith or coming out of some other desire that's captured my heart. Who is, what are the consequences of that? The effect of it? Who's God? How does does Christ, the Redeemer, invade this? See, that's all an attempt to give us a framework. And you've noticed that we've been able to move very freely. It's not as though this is a conference on dealing with anger and conflict. And you'd have another conference on dealing with eating disorders. And another one on how do you deal with being depressed. And another one on when you're feeling anxious, do this. We've been able to freely move between a whole variety of different problems, right? Because it's a, there's a kind of template. This is how the world works. Wonderful fruit. It's a generalizable truth, right? It's like the fact that learning to walk also helps you run. It helps you ski. It helps you snowboard. It helps you, it helps you do lots of different things. It's a generalizable a sweet fruit. Or here's another one. We often don't think of that. One of the, fruit tree, the fruits on the tree of life is that we learn to ask for help. Um, Paul said this the other, the other day. Uh, growth is a community venture. We need each other. In fact, I cut off reading in that 2 Corinthians 1 passage, right, where it said, Paul said, Paul the apostle said, as you help us with your prayers. Paul himself had a sense of dependency on others. And I was just so, as a new Christian, I was so deeply struck by the way that my pastor, who was a very wise, godly man, 
would often end his sermons by, by, by this, with this very practical application. He would say, if, you have been, if God has convicted you of anything today, go tell somebody. Ask them to pray for you about it and ask them to ask you about it next week. See what he's trying to do. He's, what he's seeking to do is, in a very simple way, create the, 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 the nerve structure and bone structure and interconnectedness structure of the body of Christ as we help each other to grow. And people who don't ask for help perish, right? I mean, we've all known people where the grenade finally went off and there's body parts and a family destroyed and the reputation of Christ trashed and you find out this problem had a 25-year history and you weep and you wish, why didn't they ask for help? Their life turned so rancid. You know, the secret garden grew such ugly, ugly things in it. If only they had asked for help and been asking for help, it would be a very different tale today. Another part of this becoming truly human, the expression of godly emotion. Uh, I would not want us to leave today, since we've talked about things like anger and fear and so forth, on the sin side, I would not want us to leave without realizing every single emotion was created and God said about it, very good. There's a place for every emotion, right? There's a place to be angry, right? Anger was given by, God is the angriest person in the Bible. Why did he make us in his image? So that we would see something wrong and it would matter to us, right? Now, anger gets out of control a hundred ways and backwards. But in principle, anger is an emotion that arouses us to action to deal with the wrong, right? There's a place to be sorrowful and discouraged. You know, Paul says, you know, lest Epaphroditus die and I be filled with sorrow upon sorrow. And that's in the book of Philippians. It's about joy upon joy because it's appropriate. We aren't stones, we're people. And you lose someone you love, you will hurt. You will sorrow. You will be down. Even jealousy. You know, jealousy can be incredibly ugly when you're, you know, suspicious and, and vying and comparing yourself to others and wanting things and envious. And, but I've known people that weren't jealous enough also. I've known a, man, a husband and a wife that really didn't care if their spouse committed adultery. They were simply indifferent. We ought to care, right? God is jealous. He cares. He really cares. It matters to him concerning us. So there's a godly form of jealousy. And you could go right down the list, and there's going to be a form of every emotion that will inhabit the fruit tree. Yeah, emotions can run out of control. They can be prime pieces of the thorn bush. But every one of them can also be redeemed to flourish on the fruit tree. The Psalms are very honest. They're very full of the whole spectrum of human emotion. And Jesus lived the Psalms, and he was the man of sorrows, and he could be angry. There's a redemption at every point. There's a second part, and this is particularly appropriate with this James 3 and 4 passage that lies behind us, because I'm going to move now, and the things I'm going to mention largely have to do with interpersonal conflict. And James was about quarrels and fighting and peacemaking. And if you get the interpersonal conflict stuff straight, you can get almost everything else straight, too, because it is so human nature 101, you know, the interpersonal stuff. What I've called the second major area of sweet fruit is to create a climate of grace in your relationships. Redemptive people give mercy. Why? Because they've been given mercy. There's a dynamic that plays there. Um, it's interesting. I, uh, sometimes people will say that, that we're supposed to imitate Jesus, or Jesus is our model. 
And there's a way you can say that, and there's a way the Bible says that, but he's a very unusual sort of model. Because when we speak of role models, we usually think of someone that is over there, you know, and you, you know, be like Mike, or you, know, you see someone who's admirable, an athlete, or a pastor, or a friend, or a, you know, a parent. They're over there. But Jesus is the kind of, he is a model, yes, but, he's the, but God is actually doing to us the things he's calling us to do. So if you're a parent, it's not just that God is a model for being a parent. You are being parented by God, right? It's, it's as though, you know, it, it's, uh, if, if a, hus- a husband is called to love a wife the way Jesus loves the church, but that husband is being loved as a wife by Christ. He's, you're learning by having it done to you. We're called to be counselors. You could have a book on Jesus as the wonderful counselor, but we'd want to make sure we also said he is counseling you. So you're learning by having it done to you, um, this mercy. Now in that, there's a number of crucial things. One of them is to forgive. Forgive is an attitude. We'll deal later with forgiveness as a transaction, but there's a forgiveness is an attitude towards others that grows out of your transaction with God. And you've got a couple of key passages here that uh, uh, I've quoted Mark eleven twenty five. When you stand praying, notice there's no other people involved. You're not, you're not talking to the guy you're mad at, you had the problem with. It's between you and God here, this attitudinal forgiveness. When you stand praying, if you have anything against anybody, forgive. Jesus is real global there because the only alternative is to harbor bitterness. And the only way you can ever have the transaction later where they actually people, you know, will you forgive me? I do forgive you, is where you have the predisposition to forgive in the first place. Forgiveness as an attitude. What else creates a climate of grace? The asking of forgiveness. I found this just so helpful in marital relations, marriage counseling, my own marriage, in our self-righteousness, and when, we're, when there's a conflict, you often feel like the other person started it, and the other person is 95% wrong, and yeah, I know I reacted a little bit, my 5%. Okay, if it's even 5%, take credit for that and go ask forgiveness. You may find out that that 5 was really 50. You may find out that if you really trace it back far enough, you did start it. You know? but, but who cares? The very willingness to say, I was wrong to get bent out of shape. Please forgive me. You can see how that creates a climate of grace. It changes the rules. Because in an argument, I'm busy telling you your sin. You're busy telling me my sin. And I'm busy making excuses for mine. And you're busy making excuses for yours. So you're at loggerheads, aren't you? But if one of us is willing to say, I'm wrong to speak that way, all of a sudden you have no more argument, right? Because you're both agreeing. And you're also communicating something very essential about the fact that we as people, because we are under the umbrella of grace, we don't need to be defensive. Why do I need to win the argument? It's just my pride anyway. They, my spouse, my friend, my coworker, whoever, my parent, whoever it is, my kids, that person needs grace. And if I can come as a person who is myself experiencing grace from God and my need for grace from them, it just brings the, it changes the rules it brings the dynamics of grace into the relationship. Here's the basics of asking forgiveness. Honesty. I was wrong when I said, did, blank. 
a transaction, you're requesting a transaction, would you please forgive me? And an expression of, of compassion, expression of sorrow. I'm sorry I hurt you. I see what I did. That's an ideal, and we don't often live up to the ideal, and there's often some pretty half-baked things that, uh, that come under the name of asking forgiveness. But if you can, at least in our midst here, let's aim for this, right? Name the sin, ask forgiveness, and express sorrow, some sense of compassion for the effect that it had on another person. One last little aside I'd want to put in here. Forgiveness is for sins. Apologies are for accidents. Right? Real crucial difference. Many times people try to use apologies for sin. You know, uh, and, and it never quite works. Because the, the typical approach is, well, I'm sorry I did that. Oh, that's okay. That's, that's not a transaction, is it? Because it wasn't okay. You haven't really been forgiven. It, uh, uh, when, it, when you've just had an accident, it's been an accident, uh, you know, you bump into somebody's elbow at the, in the uh, cafeteria line. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, you know. Well, then it's, you know, okay, and you help them clean it up. Uh, forget, apologies for accidents, forgiveness for sin. The, uh... Giving. This is the love your enemies stuff. The acting to give in tangible ways. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him drink. If your husband's been an idiot, make him a meal. If your wife's been grouchy, bring her flowers or find out what you did wrong and ask her forgiveness. It's that, it's that unilateral love offensive sort of thing that God has done to us. See why it all, see it all ties to the gospel. Because we were not here loving God when God came to love us as his enemy, right? So it's, the, it's that, that dynamic that you've been treated this way. You are being treated this way. Grow up into that image in the way you treat others. And that does create such a dynamic that changes the rules from how the flesh, the world, and the devil typically work. It, uh, uh, give to people. Act. And it's got to be, it's another one of these places where getting specific really helps. It's not just love in general. It, uh, it's interesting in Romans 12, far from expecting it's going to be spontaneous and easy, it uses a very strong word. It says, take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Think about it. What will you do? What will scratch the itch of this person? What will bring blessing to this person? And... Uh, Again, it's that maturity of our humanity that God is interested in growing us up. And, uh, and then the final area in terms of uh, this climate of grace is endurance. Look at these, uh, these attributes. Endurance, forbearance, long-suffering, patience, perseverance. Now, all those words are familiar, aren't they, if you've read your Bible? Because they're, they are everywhere. They're on every list of what God wants to produce in our lives. Now, what's the common thread? The heat remains. It's interesting, isn't it? The only way you endure is because there's something that's you've got to endure. Patience involves a problem that doesn't go away. Forbearance means you're putting up with something that's still a problem. Right? Long-suffering means long-suffering, doesn't it? And so, in other words, none of these things are fun to learn. Right? These aren't fun fruits. They also, though, happen to be absolutely 
at the heart of how God himself is. And I've called it here a communicable attribute of our Lord's essential character. When you think about it, how does God put up with it, with this world? How did Jesus put up with it? He was the Lord of the universe. He had made them. Their lives are dependent on them. He had come to save them. He was their Lord and King, their Christ of all their hopes. And they reject him and manipulate him and try to use him. And how did he put up with it? Why, why was he so... Why did he not say much, a lot of things he could have said? Why was he so patient? It's because God is content to work in lives over the long haul. And I'll sometimes put this to people. God is content to work in individuals on a scale of decades, right? We wish it was a scale of days or right now, but God somehow seems content to work in us on a scale of decades. He seems content to work in his church on a scale of centuries. It's amazing when you read church history. What a bunch of rats, heretics, bumblers, just like us. You know? And somehow the Lord shows himself through that. He's content to work for the long haul. And it's a communicable attribute. He wants us to get that too. Here's the third area. If we just, had, if we just had, were people of integrity and who create a climate of grace, we might be justly charged with being uh, maybe wimpy. But Christianity is a red-blooded warrior religion, but it's a weapon with weapons of love, isn't it? On the foundation of that integrity and that graciousness are all these things that have backbone and courage and directness and, they re- and it's, like, it's like, there's a world there, and yes, I'm to be patient with it, but yes, I'm to go after it. I'm to do something. And so it's a, it's a religion that, for all its forbearance, then creates the most dynamic, active, do-what-you-can of anything that, that has ever hit the planet. And of the many things I've said, I've, uh, that could be said, I've only flagged three here. Uh, one is that, if you get all this, candor becomes possible. You become able to speak straight, right? This is not talking about being mean and meddlesome and nagging and critical. And that's all the sin stuff. That's all the thornbush stuff. But get straight all that we've talked about. And you've got reason to be able to speak with utter directness into people's lives. And this is one of the things I, you know, I've, I think I've, I've slowly learned over all these 27 years of being a Christian, 25 years of being in in ministry, is that if what I say to a person is one, true, two, it's constructive, and three, they know I care about them, I can say anything. And yeah, they may kick and scream and they may make excuses and, you know, but odds are, you know, you're going to get a hearing. Because in the world we live in, people do not say true things with constructive, where it's going somewhere, and with love. And when those two ingredients, the constructive intent, where it's going, and the love that people know. I mean, people can read hostility and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and I'm superior to you and I'm going to fix you. They can, people can read that a mile away. But where that's not there, I liken it to this. that if, you know, if I take the log out of my own eye, or you take the log out of your eye, I've got a speck in my eye. I'm going to let you stick your finger in my eye if I know that you're not going to go I will let you stick your finger in my eye and say really hard things 
You know, like my family, I came to Christ or someone who, was, someone who was willing to say hard things, like, you're destroying yourself. And uh, I feel very privileged in that. And, and by God's grace, able to say hard things in a way that so surprises people because it's going somewhere with hope and, it, and it's coming out of care. God would have that of each of us. Forgiveness is a transaction. By, presumably, if you're able to then have a candid talk, then there's the opportunity for people to ask forgiveness. And here's where you get the actual exchange. So when you think about Luke 17 or Matthew 18, see, this is not saying when you stand praying, forgive. This is saying if your brother asks for forgiveness, forgive him. And it's presumed that there's a conversation that has taken place. That difference between, between attitude and transaction as you look at the biblical passages, you'll find that'll take you a long way because half the passages are attitudinal and half the passages are transactional. And when you read books on forgiveness, you will find some people will say, unless they ask, I don't have to forgive them. You'll find other books will say, as long as you can forgive them in their heart, you don't need to go back to the person. Eh, they're both half-truths, aren't they? The Bible very wonderfully puts both together because the purpose of the speaking of truth and the forgiving of people is actually to build real relationship, not just to erase people out of our lives. So you get the possibility then of a transaction. And then finally, if you've gotten everything we've talked about, that you, I, I hope there's a vision there, and Paul Tripp will certainly bring this clear in the, in the, weeks to, in the sessions to come, that your life has a mission that is fundamentally positive. It's a, it's a yes to a calling. Because you're saying yes to a calling, there's the ability then to sort through, where do I need to say no? Where do I need to set a limit? Where do I need to say later? And one of the real pitfalls of ministry-oriented people is that, is that it's easy for us to know that just being selfish and willful doesn't cut it. But, you know, so I can't live for my own desires. My will be done. But often ministry-minded people get jerked around by what is essentially a form of the fear of man. Your will be done. If other people want it of me, I must give it to them. And that's not what Jesus does. And what you've got on this uh, next study, uh, this is another one of these places I will leave you with a Bible study. Jesus at the end of his life said, I completed the work I was given. In other words, no remainder, no regret, nothing that he hadn't done. Now, what you then see is that in all sorts of ways, people made requests of Jesus. I want this, I want that, do this, I want this from you. And Jesus, it, 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 by the way, these are all, all the citations here from the Gospel of John. Uh, I picked John because it's a, it's a book that so strongly emphasizes how much Jesus did the Father's will. It's also a book where Jesus is deluged with other people's demands, desires, and wants. And what you find is that there are times Jesus simply says yes. Every one of those times is a, is a time when a person is in absolute dire need. They're, you know, it's the beggar on the roadside. It's the blind man. It's the utterly weak who just need help and you can't put it off. But there's other times where Jesus just flatly says no. You know, the fact that he loves people doesn't mean he does what they want him to, always. And as you do this study, as you look at some of these, uh, at least a third of them, uh-uh. You know, I'm not marching to your drummer here. 
And then there's all kinds of times where what Jesus does, he actually in the long run does what they ask, but he does it later, or he does it different. Like when, they, when the people come and say, your friend Lazarus died, it very pointedly says, he hung around two more days, and then he went. You know? uh, the, when his mother says, uh, they've run out of wine, he does make wine, but he has a kind of feisty interchange with her before he does, you know? basically saying, I'm not marching to your orders here. I'm marching to a different drummer. I'm marching to the will of my father. Let me pray for you. We're at the conclusion of my part. Paul Tripp is going to take what we've looked at and run it into, okay, we're people who want to grow in these ways ourselves. And now how can we also start to think how we'll give it away? Okay. Our Father, you are so kind. You treat us in these ways. Jesus Christ treats, has treated people and treats us in these ways. And you want to make us this way so that we treat others in these ways. And at the very content of our counsel, as we try to help people with their struggles and problems, with their sufferings, fears, angers, the very content of that help is the very thing we are receiving. Would you make this so clear to us? Would you thrill us and encourage us and move us and take each one of us, even today, the next step in the right direction that you would have us go to your praise and glory and honor. Amen. For information about this resource and others like it, call Resources for Changing Lives at 1-800-318-2186 or visit us on the web at www.ccef.org. A CDR Communications Production.